This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Next up, we're going to speak about the really amazing series on SBS Online. It's called Faces of Rohingya. And uh, Michael Green is the journalist uh, who has, is behind that. We're all going to, also going to speak with Shofakul Islam, who's part of that project. Uh, it's called Faces of uh, Rohingya. And uh, we have Michael Green here in the studio. And we also have Shofakul Islam on the, on the line uh, to speak about this series. And I suppose it's not every year that we're so concerned about the monsoon season in Bangladesh either. Um, This year is very different. Um, We all know that the rains are coming and that there are hundreds of thousands of Rohingya people living in makeshift refugee camps, but um, I think few people are more concerned about what's happening there than those Rohingyas living here in Melbourne. And, uh, Michael, you've... um, gone and met with Rohingya people out at Spring at Springvale and uh, and as part of that process you've met Shofakul who's on the line. How did you two come to meet each other and know each other? Uh, well actually um, it's courtesy of another um, another guy um, Tia Cass who is an artist who contributed a whole lot of portraits to this to this story and so Tia and Shofakul met and Tia started hanging out down at this cafe um, and then I got involved a little bit later down the line um, uh, but you know, immediately when I heard about this cafe and, and you know the fact that there is this place in in Springvale called the Rohingya Bazaar, where this very small community, there's about 500 people in Melbourne, um, gather and spend a lot of time. Uh, you know, immediately that is fascinating, and I, and and I was very lucky to spend a bit of time down there. Yeah, and Shofikul, I wonder if you could give us a bit of a sense of of the Rohingya Bazaar and and I guess how it came about and and when you first came across it. Yeah, I met, uh, I met with Tia also, the uh, same as uh, Michael. I, ca- I came to know him with him through one of my best friends, and uh, he's, uh, he said, I'm artist, and why don't we do something uh, differently to uh, to make a story with my art? I said, it's a great idea, and it's really good because we obviously we're doing uh, not any kind of interest, not any kind of uh, involvement with institutions. We're doing ourselves. That's good. Let's do it. And then we met Michael. Yeah. And so uh, you met Michael at the at the cafe, Shofkul? Yes, I met at the cafe. So the cafe, have, we have Springville, and it's been set up nearly three years now. The people came here around five years ago, and we don't have many places to hang around, and people speak their own, own, own languages, so uh, so the cafe makes uh, uh, a place to meet each other nearly every day, and in terms of uh, help each other. And yeah, yeah. One of the guys I was speaking to, I think his name's Ash, yeah, and I was saying, "Oh, you, do you come here often?" He said, "Oh, no, I don't come here very, very often. Just maybe three times a week." <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how you measure often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, look, I, there's so much. I love about this city and I think there's so much when reading this work that I don't know about Melbourne as well and I suppose what was your motivation Michael in in going down to the Rohingya Bazaar and and meeting Shofakul and and others and wanting to tell the story of the Rohingya um, people living in Melbourne? Yeah, well, actually, I have been um, speaking to a bunch of, of Rohingya people around the country in, in Victoria and elsewhere and just kind of trying to get a bit of a um, grip on the situation that they're facing here and also in the way they're communicating with um, people back home or in Rakhine State in Myanmar or in, in Bangladesh. Um, and when I first met uh, Shovkal, actually, he was sort of saying, you know, how... Um, Often at the cafe, there'll be people who are just sort of sitting there, you know, with their headphones on, speaking or like watching, you know, talking via video um, app to, to family. Um, and there was something about that idea that really captured me, this sort of having to live in, in both places and, and what it must be like to try to make a go of it here while also dealing with such a catastrophe with so many family and friends um, who are, you know, it's really coming up to a very critical I mean, it's always a critical moment, but but with the rains coming, um, I was really interested in finding out about that dilemma for people and what it's like to be living here while dealing with with such trauma among your family. 
What really comes through for me and in all the people profiled in this series, Michael, is um, the fact that there's a lot of kind of assistance, um, kind of volunteer assistance that happens within the Rohingya community, people helping each other out, whether it's uh, providing interpreting services, there's also someone who helps at a domestic violence service as well. Um, and for you, uh, Shofikul, I was really drawn to your involvement with the National Union of Workers and, and contacting them after being concerned that Rohingya labourers were being underpaid. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that and, and your ongoing involvement there. Yeah, this is, I feel, uh, this is one of the greatest uh, women for me, uh, for my 30 years of age, because I've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, government agencies or NGO bodies that are helping and concerned to help with the Rohingyans, and of course they are helping across the globe. So while we're here, here in Australia, it's, uh, it's the same. We have a settlement service and other services around and people are getting help, but it's not really making independent to people. So after I met with the union and people didn't get paid, people in still in poor conditions, and I have contact with the union. The, the union uh, help with in, te- in terms of our interest, in terms of our, our needs, and also I've been offered for the jobs, and I've been keep keep doing the uh, work with the union, and uh, I was able to. Help, help and get involved with others like uh, other refugees like me from not only particular Rohingyans like Chin Chin and others and as well as, as well as working class people and yeah the structures we are having is it's great for me and uh, and it's it's kind of making us more independent to step up uh, build up our confidence yeah and I was I was about to ask that about whether your experience with the union has put you in touch with other um, sort of communities within the the Melbourne community, and that's happening. And so, what what sort of difference do you feel like you're, you're making through the union, um, Shofkul? Yeah, in, yeah. Basically, in in Burma, we have uh, fourteen uh, states and uh, one hundred and thirty six official uh, ethnic cities in in Burma. So we're not able to meet each other and. There, there are a lot of stream, uh, stream media, and the media is going on across. Kind of people have been brainwashed, you know. Or, or Rohingya people are like this, or Kachin people are like this. But, no, but people never got it, got a chance to meet each other and to engage each other. So while we're here in Australia, it's very multicultural, and we have something background uh, idea from behind. And when while we meet, it's kind of oh, these people are actually not like this, and this is a matter we got to understand each other kind of involving with the union we uh, we met and also it's create uh, uh unity between between others for example the uh, the site we we organized called a farm site in the southeast the rohingya people were excluded and they have uh, similar fears a similar idea from behind but they don't they don't engage with others like vietnamese and cambodians so after we uh, organized it with the union. We did a lot of uh, offsite meeting, a lot of barbecue, uh, many of time, and it's kind of creating the unity between uh, the different community in society. Yeah. And, and Michael, I guess you've been producing, of course, the Messenger podcast for some time and conducting this kind of journalism that's really highlighting the, the personal plight and, and putting a human face to the refugees' issues around the world and, of course, um, those uh, on the, you know, the end of, of Australia's um, you know, punitive policy regarding people who are coming over here. I wonder, looking at the media landscape more broadly, do you see much of this kind of journalism happening where there are people living here in the community, of course, many people who have fled from afar. Um, is there any moves to kind of better highlight the plight of those people, do you, do you see? Uh, look, I mean, I think that, I think people are... I mean, often people don't want to read stories about refugees, unfortunately. Um, it's something that <laughs> always kind of happens. Um, but but when you're telling a story that's not just, you know, sort of abstract suffering or um, some notion of cruel policy, and in fact you find out about, you know, a person and, and the situation they're going through, and person in their complexity, I think it, it actually makes that much more compelling. You're more likely to want to read um, down to the end. It's something um, surprising that you're finding out. Like, you know, when I was in the cafe and I was sitting there and Seriously, for about two hours, I was watching Taylor Swift videos that some guy was picking from <laughs> YouTube, and I was just like, "Well, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that <laughs> that that would be the situation." Um, and 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 so, 
I think if you can tell stories that do show that sort of unexpected thing or, or sort of people in in ways that you, you you didn't know, then then I think it's much more likely to get people's attention. Mm. And as um, Dylan said, you you tell stories in all different ways, and so they we spoke to you on this program earlier about the they cannot take the sky, the book that you pulled together, but also um, became an immigration museum. Um, Event uh, and the the Messenger podcast, and now the Faces of Rohingya series on SBS Online. And I suppose they're all different ways of telling a story, but the the way that this story um, has been told on SBS Online is is very beautiful. The artwork, maybe talk a little bit about the artwork, and I suppose even the interaction of reading the story and then the person's face, um, the person, and I suppose a, a, a portrait of the person appears as well, and then we read down and we meet somebody else and we see their face. I mean, tell us about that that story. Storytelling process. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and um, Tia Cass, the artist, and Shaw Fickle and I worked really closely on this. Um, and so, um, we wanted to, to tell individual stories, but also to be able to touch on these the, the bigger issues that are facing the community and to kind of cover the breadth of them um, by by choosing people that were representative or that showed particular aspects. Um, and so, Shaw Fickle uh, suggested people we could we could meet with um and and i did um interviews there in the cafe uh and and then uh, i worked with tia closely to sort of talk about some of the things that really stood out about those people in those interviews and then he incorporated them in his artwork he's got this wonderful kind of combination of realist portraits and then these surreal elements um and quite comic um elements as well and, and so tia is a street artist you can see lots of his pastes up around town um and he he just you know, every time I look at it, I find a new little detail that he's picked up. Um, and, and I really, I, I look at those portraits and um, I look at, th- there's one of, um, and one man, Abdul Rahim, and he's just got these eyes that you could look at for so long. And I feel like so true to my experience of speaking to him. And, and it's wonderful to have that visual element and to be able to collaborate in this way with the three of us. In Shofikul, how do you, how do you feel about your um, visual representation in this series? Yeah. Yeah, that, that that is really good for us, and uh, uh, it, it's highlighting uh, individual issues and also broader issues, and also it's uh, um, a picture. In, uh, it's been going on and uh, for how long? Uh, by, for example, looking at the owner of the cafe, he was he was the part of refugees during uh, 1989, 1990, and uh, repatriated and again, uh, fled again. And look at the girl; she was born in. She was born in overseas, and she's still stateless. And a uh, look at to me is uh, uh, went across to the mainland to settle up, but it's still not a fix. So people from different uh, different backgrounds, but all belong to the uh, Rohingya uh, Rohingya ethnic city. And it's it's at the end, it's highlighting the the issues. Uh, look at the man, uh, uh, fisherman, as Abdul Rahim. He's desperate. He's, he left his two children. He's still have to contact it. The, the situation is whenever he thinks it's kind of become uh, you know a crazy feeling he's even yeah really emotional because he worried about his uh, family still yeah so when it, when I was working with um, Shofikal and stuff so um, we then had lots of phone conversations and Shofikal was interpreting for lots of those interviews and um it was very, yeah, I, I mean, I could tell how um, moving it was for Shawfickle to, to do that and kind of what what a big ask it was for me to, yeah, yeah ask yeah. Shawfickle to, to, yeah, it, to work it, it in this of, way with people. It's very heavy. Yeah, it kind of shows uh, people are resilient as well. Uh, and people, people are fleeing, uh, fleeing across uh, the overseas around the countries around and the international community or other organizations helping with the Rohingya community. At the same time, uh, people, the situation become uh, kind of victims, you know. It's showing also it's not kind of uh, only that uh, we are victims, we're also resilient, how we're resilient for generations, like one, two, three generations, and we're still uh, suffering and struggling to get up, uh, to step up by ourselves, yeah. And I think that really comes through in this work, uh, uh, Shaw And I suppose the, uh, other people that have um, featured in, in um, um, Michael's piece and and have they responded to it? And, and what's the sense in the community here in, in Springvale uh, of, of how well their stories have been captured? Has it been, um, I suppose, an empowering feeling having this published on SBS? 
Now, with this one, it really, really, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, I didn't even expect that, that, that result will come. It's, uh, it's really great, uh, uh, result, great outcome with, with this. I believe it's obviously, you know, the tier has been doing, uh, very long. It's been going six months and it did, uh, without any, any expectation, it, uh, any profit, it did, did really well. It did really well by heart. Yeah. And Michael, of course. And what about for you, Michael? You mentioned you've been speaking to um, Rohingya people in here in Melbourne, of course, but also further abroad. Is there more work to come from from this kind of series for you potentially? Uh, I'm not sure. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, we will. There's just very powerful stories that people have to tell, mm. um, and and so much complexity about their lives here and 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 overseas. And I just look. I, I've, you know, I, even though I'm paying a lot of attention to these issues, I kind of. To begin with, when this all sort of began to happen around um, sort of mid-late last year, the, the, I mean, obviously the Rohingya um, have been persecuted for decades, but this real blow-up that has caused 700,000 people to, to flee in the, at the end of last year, I kind of wasn't that aware of it. And I, it actually happened because I was on Manus Island and I, I was speaking to with one of the guys there who's a Rohingya man and he was telling me about how he'd collected donations from other detainees um, to give to his family and, and relatives who had fled. And that was the first I really became aware of it. But it's such such an extraordinary exodus, an extraordinary set of circumstances. And there are really interesting things about the way people have been communicating um, by large WhatsApp groups or um, communicating with people um, internationally in the absence of, of media. So this, there is quite a lot, I think, to, to explore and to reveal about, about this situation. And as I said at the beginning, um, we know the monsoon rains are coming and this is something that um, we can read about in the mainstream media, that there is massive concerns there. And uh, we know um, through through this work that, Shovakul, you're in touch with your family uh, in Bangladesh and also in Myanmar. And uh, and I suppose is that same um, concern and worry shared with the family there? Or that how are, how are they approaching this this monsoon period? Yeah, it's generally it's, it's same to everyone. How whatever your background, whatever your situation is, even though you in overseas uh, you're doing really well whatever your uh, your position is but it's, uh, to to Rohingya in, in uh, Burma and Bangladesh it's the same your, whatever you reach whatever you do in what, uh, whatever institution you work for but your family it's suffering there and yeah and if you think about what's gonna happen tomorrow after a month after two months it's, it's, it's kind of unimaginable it's, uh, you cannot even imagine that it's really it's really desperate. You know, it's, it's better to not not to think. I, I believe, yeah. So, so seven of my family, my family and my extended family, they have to fly immediately because of you know the result of the military uh, the campaign. And, yeah, and they fled to Bangladesh, and uh, there've been a, a lot of people been calling to me, and yeah, whenever I listen to them, it's kind of it's really sad to me, and I cannot go and help and fix it up and yeah they don't even think about tomorrow what's gonna uh, happen you know it's it's really it's really uh difficult to think even yeah and then the rohingya bazaar is very important at this time i imagine and it sounds like it is a real hub there in springvale yeah it's yeah, it's it's hub uh, yeah in Melbourne and yeah and people go uh, go into the cafe nearly every day and meeting and uh, for example like me and some other friends uh, who speak uh, a bit of English and and we go nearly every day and help with with the people kind of guideline in terms of their needs and yeah we're looking to, uh, forward to set up a proper place to, uh, for a, a hub place for the community to to help and to be to get more uh, independent in the future. So, yeah. 
Well, thank you both of you for um, coming in and speaking about um, the Faces of Rohingya series on Triple R. Really appreciate it. Um, wonderful to meet you, Shofakul. Uh, and uh, and next time we hope to have you here in the studio with us. And uh, and uh, thank you for sharing your story. And um, Michael, um, uh, thank you again for coming in. And um, the Faces for, of Rohingya series is on SBS Online. Um, it's pretty easy to find. I don't know if there's a other than the Google search, whether there's a better uh, yeah, way. If you, if you go um, SBS Life and Faces of Rohingya. Yeah, and you'll easy, find it. Easy to find. And it's very striking in the artwork from Tia, as we've been speaking about. And um, Michael Green is the host of the Messenger podcast that came out of the Willis Centre, award-winning around the world. Uh, and uh, They Cannot Take the Sky is a book and also an exhibition at the Immigration Museum, which I understand is going to be re-shown, Michael. Yeah, it's just about to open in Craigieburn um, at the Hume Council Gallery there, the G. Lee Wick Dolin Galleries, uh, opening on May the 31st. And uh, you can find Michael's website as well and follow everything that he does because that's what I do. Um, thank you both. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And like hundreds of others, I was outside the heritage-listed La Mama Theatre in Carlton on Saturday watching as the MFB assessed what was left of that wonderful theatre building after it was gutted by fire in the early hours of Saturday morning. And last year, of course, La Mama celebrated its 50th anniversary. And as part of that, I understand its rich archives were sent over to Melbourne University. So they, we hope, are safe, which is a relief. But still, it's an incredibly sad event. Uh, the only positive being that, according to Arts Hub, La Mama will rebuild. And the fire, we don't know what caused it yet. Um, it does open up that broader conversation about cultural institutions like La Mama and how they influence the neighbourhoods they're located in. And we're going to celebrate it this morning with Associate Professor Dave Nichols. He's from over there at Melbourne University. And it's great to have you in, as always, Dave. And it's a very sad event, but I suppose we can... We don't need to imagine Carlton without La Mama because we know, fingers crossed, they're going to rebuild. Exactly, yes. Hi, Kalia. Hi, Dylan. Um, look, it's, uh, it is uh, a, really, um, a really awful thing to happen. There's so many uh, interesting things that come out of this. One is, of course, as people are saying, worse, have been saying for some time, La Mama is not a building. It's a cultural institution. Uh, there are two La Mama theatres... You know, there's the the court courthouse one as well, uh, so you know they they kind of um, they they shift around a bit, or they have they have a bit of a presence in a in a few locations, and of course um, the the show that was that is presently playing uh, went down to uh, the local library and uh, was was put on there instead. So you know it's it's obviously it's it's an, it's really weird to think about it's intrinsically carlton and it's always been part of carlton but it's a little bit of a a vibe thing as well as uh the actual um slightly unusual um ex laundry ex printer building that um that's there in faraday street the physical space does sort of become entwined in in the identity of a, an institution like La Mama, though, doesn't it, to an extent? When it's the, the physical space people come to, they see plays and, um, and, and it becomes synonymous with po- what people think of. Totally. I mean, you're absolutely right, Dylan. It's, it's got that... It's a small place. You know, it doesn't, doesn't fit that many people. Um, I think about 20,000 people a year go through that place. Uh, it's, so it's... Um, which is not insubstantial, but it's uh, you know it's not a it's not a megaplex, and uh, and so it has all of that kind of you know the the feel uh, of the of the place is really really important to I guess the the idea of La Mama and the and the particularly its beginnings and who stomped on those boards and all that stuff. That's that is correct. Exactly, all those uh, hallowed names. And I think, I mean, we don't know the cause yet and I understand that's still being assessed and we hope, you know, that it can, the structure can remain and it's got alarms on it in case it collapses and all that sort of stuff at the moment. Uh, and we, you know, La Mama owns that site mm. and building um, so they can rebuild uh, in, in some capacity. But I, I wonder... I sort of looked at some of the comments coming out yesterday and, and on Saturday and I suppose the grief uh, and some people just jumped straight to the conclusion that, oh, developers want that site and that's what's happened and, you know, mm. which is completely false mm. in this regard. But there is something in that, isn't there, that people jump to that conclusion? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Corkman, apart from anything else, you know, the demolition of the Corkman Hotel, was that two years ago? I mean, that, that sort of... Um, those kinds of things resonate. 
you know, that's it's one of those uh, extraordinary uh, ironies of gentrification. It almost doesn't even bear saying. It's so obvious. But, you know, places like La Mama were established in 67 uh, uh, because Carlton, you know, who cares about, you know, cheap as chips? Um, only, you know, a few bohemians and winos lived in Carlton oh, and some Italians, I suppose. And, um, you know, no one was very interested. It was it was easy to establish something like a, you know, alternative uh, new theatre. And uh, La Mama has stuck around, um, you know, over 50 years, as you said. And, uh, and, you know, meanwhile, Carlton has become some of the most desirable real estate, you know, actually... I'd say in Melbourne, but really in the world, you know, and it's so it's uh, it, it starts to look like even though it's arguably one of the reasons why that place became so desirable, it starts to look like a bit of anom- an anomaly and not just because, well, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily always experimental theatre, but, you know, a small theatre in a um, in an upmarket part of town. Uh, but also, I think just to go back to the building itself, it's a kind of a weird Arrangement like that building, sitting at the back of a, a yard in a way. So there's so you go down Faraday Street and it's a it's a fairly regular streetscape, but then you have this odd little setback um, facing the opposite direction. I real I only realised um, in the last couple of days uh, that's the back of the building. I didn't realise. Oh, that the courtyard was. The I back, didn't realise. I'm such front. a I'm such a fool. Well, it's because <laughs> well I've only ever gone in in the back then. Exactly. It never occurred to me. And I saw some, I haven't looked, you know, I went and looked at the at the site. I went and had a look yesterday, like you. I went and, you know, paid a little you And know, there was a lot of people down tribute. there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, uh, but even then I didn't, I didn't go around and look at the other side and that's, uh, you know, the front, which is, um, I've seen pictures of it though, it doesn't look like much of a, it looks about as much of a front as the back does. But... You know, that, in a way, that's irrelevant. Mm. But it is a it is a an unusual building if we're going to talk about the building. But one of the things that I think is really um, fascinating about the La Mama story is the kind of is to you know go back to the vibe thing. And it um, even though I think it you know it doesn't doesn't serve anyone ultimately to to focus on beginnings necessarily. I mean, it's had fifty years of extraordinary contribution and uh, you know. Uh, adventurousness and a really great business model that obviously works really well and brings, you know, theatre to a lot of um, a lot of diverse people, a lot of diverse theatre to a lot of diverse people. So it's it's a it's a fab, it's a fabulous institution. But I I'm just um, you know I think it's worth remembering, and you know we're not we're not speak. It's, this is not a eulogy and not not to, and it's not an obituary but it's worth thinking about the the role that la mama played particularly in the late 60s to uh campaign against censorship and in favor of free speech in the in the 60s and that was that was a huge thing uh and also um the role that it played in the establishment of the australian film industry in in the early 70s and that was also a huge thing and i've just uh only a few weeks ago i picked up um a copy of Catherine Lumby's book about the Alvin Purple films, uh, and of course that's a that comes directly out of La Mama, insofar as Betty Burstall was the um, the founder of La Mama. She went to New York in the in the mid sixties, came back and said, "I've been to this amazing place called La Mama. I'm going to start something called La Mama." Uh, and uh, Tim Burstall, who was her husband, is became was at at that stage already a film director, and you know became a major film director in the 70s in Australia and recruited a whole lot of um, uh, La Mama, you know, actors who rose in the ranks uh, at La Mama into his movies. So Bruce Spence uh, in the amazing Stork film, which in my memory there's a scene in Stork that actually takes place in La Mama, but uh, I'm I'm not... I could be confusing it with something else. But, you know, Stork, such a brilliant film and came out of a play that was put on... Uh, at La Mama, and um, Graham, Graham Blundell was, you know, a, uh, an actor at La Mama who then ends up in these uh, Alvin Purple movies, which are, you know, amongst the the first major successes of Australian cinema. So, you know, all of these things, and you know, and those things feed into each other. And there's a there's a kind of um, 
Oh, I don't want to use the word adventurous again, but I can't think of another one. There's a great adventurousness that comes out of, you know, that kind of, you know, poking a poking at the status quo and, you know, trying to, um, you know, pull down the, you know, an entrenched conservatism of the period. Uh, and this is done either through humour, as per the humour inverted commas, I suppose we'd say now, in, in the Elvin Purple movies, or... Um, or it's done through, you know, really outright campaigning, protests in the streets, those kinds of things. And the and La Mama is, La Mama and the actors that are that are part of that. Some of whom are then um, heavily involved in the Pram Factory, which is uh, no longer there, obviously, but was you know kind of the companion uh, animal. Uh, no, that's not the right word. Companion, the companion um, is, um, you know, all of those things really had a contribution to make to Australian society that was way beyond, you know, that, you know, tiny little um, enclave of, you know, 30 or 40 actors and a couple of hundred people who went to see their plays. We're speaking with Associate Professor Dave Nichols from the University of Melbourne this morning all about the history and legacy of, of La Mama in the wake of that um, fire over the weekend which gutted the building. And that history that you've just spoken about, Dave, that's catalogued in La Mama's archives and we've heard that, yep. that the great bulk of those um, have been sent over to Melbourne Uni and are safe. But it kind of um, raises the point about the extent to which cultural institutions like La Mama have their archives off-site and properly kind of cared for. And when we had um, the great flood of Twitter of Triple R a couple of years ago when the fire hydrant kind of exploded outside the building and, um, you know, it caused some, some damage to the building, but nothing in our archives was really lost or damaged. But we, in the wake of that, sent a lot of our stuff over to the State Library, so it is kept safe now. To what extent are cultural institutions making sure that these archives are kind of kept by the right people in, in relative safety? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, the, wor- the world of archiving is... I'm only vaguely slightly peripherally involved in in that world but anytime i talk to people who work in that kind of area um it's a oh geez it's a it's a double-edged sword in some ways because um it's not like you can just you know the the archivists don't go oh my god what are we going to fill up this room with today (laughs) um we've got so much space and and we just you know the the archivists are not uh you know libraries and and librarians and so on are not walking down the street soliciting um donations for their archives because they are so pressed for space and there is you know i mean what you say is true i mean obviously i think and I, i imagine that most listeners would think this stuff is really really valuable and important it's a it's a great um you know it's a treasure trove and you know i guess some of the things i just mentioned it gives us such an insight into uh our uh our culture but um wow there's no there's no space and there's no funding for those mm-hmm. kinds of things and there's a it's a, also a double-edged sword i don't think this happens a huge amount but i do know some instances not not necessarily relating to cultural um uh collections um directly but uh, where things really get culled heavily, and you know, it's you know, institutions have to justify um, why these things are important, and and there will be. I mean, it's not always because of space reasons, but space reasons, you know, are kind of uh, 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 are a little bit present in those kinds of discussions. So, you know, as long as we don't really we they, uh, you know, the government, whoever, whoever you want to blame, don't really necessarily. Uh, value that stuff uh, really, really heavily. Then there's um, there is always pressure to reduce archival collections. And nevertheless, what you say is correct. Um, the um, it's great that that stuff. You know, that would be a double tragedy, and that would be that would strike at the heart of the, you know, the the La Mama vibe. I guess if if a lot of that material was lost. And, and architecture, you know, it's certainly not an archive, but retaining. A certain architecture um, and streetscape is also important to, to memory, and I suppose how we value places. Uh, do you, you know, we don't know if the kind of the brick building, you know, the um, the shape of La Mama will remain or can be retained. It's way too early to know mm. any of this sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, but you know, in in your, um, uh, I suppose understanding as an urban planner, Dave. Can, no, I'm not can, an urban planner, Carly. Oh, what, you're a lecturer in urban planning. I lecture planning. in urban planning. I'm not an urban planner. Okay, I, as I a lecturer told you this before. in history, I know, but I, <laughs> I've conflated. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
now that I'm corrected, <laughs> yes. um, can I still ask the question though? Mm, which I'm is, not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll have you know, to call the committee. La Mama can still keep its vibe if the building has to be different. What, what, well, do we have good, experience that's good, that's there? That's the question. I mean, that's a really, really interesting question. I, I mean, I do think, and this is, this is what I've found fascinating, having a, a look at stuff over the weekend, the way that people consistently before the, the nasty events of this last weekend, that people um, were consistently talking about La Mama as, as you know, they weren't using... Um, a word like vibe, but they were basically saying, you know, it's a state of mind more than just a building. And I guess that's partly been La Mama's thing because they, you know, want to remind people that they actually operated two uh, two buildings. But but also, you know, I think it's I think it's true that it's kind of um, it, uh, it 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 hangs around. It's had a, a consistent presence as a as an ideal. You know, long long beyond uh, Betty Burstall, who died uh, just just a little less than five years ago, um, and uh, you know, and will continue, I'm sure, to 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 be. You know, it's 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 a very resilient institution as a as an idea and ideal. Making me feel good, but I, I suppose you know, just to, to step away a little bit from La Mama, um, we saw recently that the the Palais was the Palais Theatre done St Kilda was refurbished and new sprinklers put in and all this sort of stuff. And I suppose at, at great investment from from um, the state government and other bodies as well. Is this how we protect these kinds of institutions? Do we need as a community to kind of have a look at the ones that are around the place and say, how can we make sure that they're set up? the way that they need to to kind of um, prevent this stuff from happening. I don't, look, I don't know what the sprinkler system was at Le Mans. I have no, no idea about it. But, you know, that sort of investment, I know there was like the palace next door to the Palais caught on fire a decade ago and I wonder if that prompted that refurbishment, you know. How do we yeah. make sure it's still going to be there despite what might happen next door? It's, it's such a thorny area. Um, so many things have been lost and I, you know, I don't mean carelessly. I mean demolished um, out of, you know, deliberate with deliberate intention by, uh, you know, to make way for for new buildings. A lot of really treasured and beloved institutions. Uh, these things have to be, you know, in that in the current climate, um, but probably in most climates, these things have to be. Um, you know, I guess turn a profit or at least be extremely popular uh, with enough people. Uh, and that can't just be sentimentality. You can't just have people going, well, I go there every week because I went there when I was 15 and, you know, I, I have to relive that, you know, constantly. Um, so, you know, these things, they have to be uh, given, a, I guess, a, a new purpose and um, become, um, you know, valuable places again. Demographics change in particular areas. I mean, we talk about you know things. You can see the way that um, you know, and people talk about this quite a bit. And um, Dr. Sarah Taylor has written about it as well in uh, in her PhD and other works, where you know the the venues kind of, um, and I guess I'm thinking partly about music venues because that's what she writes about. But the venues kind of. Uh, go outwards in a way and certain things like the Thornbury Theatre is a great example of a place that has been, um, I guess, refurbished and renewed and given a new life. But uh, I'm going to say 20 years ago, if someone said we're going to have this kind of basically a music venue but a venue for, you know, other things out out in Thornbury, people would be like, you know, Thornbury, I wouldn't go there if you paid me. And now they're all paying through the nose to live there. So, uh, and and they want something on their doorstep that's their that's theirs. So those kinds of things are, you know, uh, there's there's a there's a whole lot of is it is a kind of a delicate bunch of instruments in in place there, which are the reason why some things stay and some things, uh, you know, don't get to stay around. But you know we have we've lost a massive amount of of things in melbourne and particularly in the last 20 years there's a um there's a great body of thought which i think is is really um you know i know a lot of people uh, a lot of listeners um probably sort of thinking can't wait for the uh the great financial collapse that means i'm finally going to be able to buy a house but you know the great but those that boom and bust that that we've been really used to in uh, australia and as you know we, we are in the well, I don't know if we're in the middle of it, but we're we're in the the biggest, um, you know, period of growth that we've ever had. You know, just without end. Uh, the 
there's just like money just goes into um, in inverted commas renewal and uh, demolition and you know building of new buildings and investment in new in new uh, new structures and so on. Uh, a lot of the time, when you look back in the last. Uh, you know, before the mid '90s, you look back, and those there was a cycle where a lot of things ended up being saved. Uh, a lot of things that were slated for demolition, um, you know, they just there just wasn't the money to to develop them, and they hung around long enough that people developed an affection for them, and they ended up being, um, you know, conserved. It's a it's a it's a funny time that we're in. On that note, we have to leave it there because we're out of time. Was that a rant? No. No. <laughs> um, and, of course, as you say, this I is not a... I was in a fugue a, state. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think really stay tuned and listen in to, to Richard Watts later in the week on Thursday morning to, to get updates on the mama and keep an eye on Arts Hub, which is where I'm getting most of my information about it. And we are celebrating it this morning. Not It's not a eulogy, as you said no. earlier. Uh, La Mama Theatre, gutted by fire over the weekend, um, have vowed to rebuild. So, fingers crossed that can happen soon but you can actually um, find out from their website where their plays are being held and at the moment the one that was on at the the theatre there um, was is being put on at the local library so you can still enjoy Kathleen Syme library so you can still enjoy the theatre of La Mama and um, all the best to their future and the shocking terrorist attacks in Surabaya earlier this month uh, followed by a riot at a prison in West Java has focused attention again on how fighters returning from places like Syria can be reintegrated into the community and this is an area that Norhuda Ismail has been studying for many years now he's a PhD candidate in politics and international relations at Monash and founder of International Institute for Peacebuilding and uh, it's really great to have you with us Huda. Hi, good morning. Happy, happy to have you. Happy, thank you for having me too. Absolute pleasure. And Indonesia's been applauded for its embrace of pluralism in the past, and it's kind of done um, quite a good job, at least observing from afar at countering violent extreme, extremism since the Bali bombings back in 2002. And this attack we've seen in Surabaya follows the bombing in Jakarta in, in 2016. Is there a concern at all that there is kind of a, a new threat or a new spread of radicalisation underway in Indonesia? currently? Yeah, I think the rise of uh, social media has changed as well the landscape of uh, threat in Indonesia. You know, in the past where people get together through mainly groups, they join an Islamic organi- underground Islamic organization called Jama Islamia first, and then the organization dispatches them to a specific military training either in Afghanistan or in southern Philippines and also involved in a series of inter- uh, local conflict in Amor and Koso, and then those individuals in, involved in terrorism. But these days, there are some elements of return foreign fighters involved, but they use social media as a way to communicate among themselves and creating kind of a loose cell network. And this is what we are seeing at the moment, you know, shortly after the attack in Jakarta, in the police headquarters in Jakarta, we witnessed a simultaneous attack, not only in Surabaya, but also in other areas such as Riau, you know. And, and, and sadly, I'm not alarmist whatsoever. I have been working in this field for years. And this is just the beginning of a tip of an iceberg, what we are seeing now. And that's really alarming to hear that. And but maybe for other people like me, um, Huda, this, this, these attacks seem to sort of come out of the blue. But when I read your work, I understand that the the people that um, that uh, we we hear are involved with these attacks have actually been on the radar. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think the importance. Yeah, I think right. You know, those people. Uh, the Indonesian authorities know of these people because, but because of our weak regulation, they do not, they do not have enough, you know, a solid legal, legal ground to actually arrest those people. And this is first. Another things, I think I'm not trying to highlight too much about my work, but I think the importance of my work has to do with how can we actually deal with subculture of uh, this community because. You know, and in, there is a main culture with this majority of Muslims in Indonesia are very moderate. And then, as you know, you know, they are coming. But you, you, we are witnessing also a tiny community or subculture of community who strongly believe that the use of violence is justified. And only people who used to live or experience in that very specific uh, subculture can understand that. And therefore, my work is trying to 
you know, taking this individual, train them so that they can challenge the very narrative of the group. It's just like the same, uh, you know, analogy in a public health where a former smoker will be the best person to smoke against smoking rather than a doctor who never smoked, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about about the tactics, I guess, that you take with regard to your work in de-radicalisation. And with these attacks, I mean, in the past, I guess, there's been a big focus on particularly young men who have tended to be the perpetrators of this sort of, um, you know, politically or religious motivated violence. But we've seen in this case, most tragically, that the whole family's been involved and, and children as well. Is that a tactic that is that is new or have we seen that sort of thing before? I think this is actually new, even in, I haven't seen this, I have been studying this subject, I haven't seen this in the whole world, you know, where the whole family kind of involves, you know. You know, I know that the terrorist has been using kinship as one of its tools to recruit for to the recruitment, but to actually carry out an attack for the, well, with the whole family is very new. You see kids, you see mother, you see, you know, like uh, brothers, but not like the first Bali bombing, definitely carried by families, right, brothers, you know and half-brothers. But now we see one family. But I think in my film called Jihad Selfie, I have been witnessing this kind of trend. I know that something growing. I know that something is going to happen involving this. But the, my problem working in this issue is I don't know where and I don't know when, you know. Because one of my sources, for instance, in my Jihad Selfie said that, okay, I'm happy to see my kid die as a said bomber. So like, wow, this mind-blowing when I did this interview and it was on camera you know it's not it's not hiding you know Mm. oh and and as Dylan said it's very shocking and I think it really has has made people all over the world just go hang on what's happening here but you have been studying gender and masculinity in Indonesian terrorist fighters and and you also didn't kind of anticipate something like this could happen but what what's your sense now um Huda whether whether this this can be sort of dealt with or, or uh, is there a concern that this will this kind of tactic will be will be um, used again oh I, I think as I told you you know like uh, because with the nature of the social media you know we can't really detect the how much it is the, the spread of this kind of understanding or ideology by employing family or using kinship and therefore in my work I have been emphasizing the importance of uh, dealing with this through gender perspective, mainly through the notion of masculinity, you know. And in this group, in my PhD, I argue that there is kind of a hegemonic type of masculinity which is being mujahid on Islamic fighters. So therefore, everyone, every recruit are inspired or aspire to be of uh, to be a mujahid and this is the thing that we have to, to challenge with this, provide them an alternative narrative for Live completely live experience, uh, what you call it, the uh, figure of masculinity. Because these people, they want to emulate only specific notion of masculinity, which is uh, Islamic warrior or mujahid, which is quite alarming, I think. Yeah, and and I'm interested in in what I guess the the populace in Indonesia how they've responded to these attacks because as you mentioned, of course, this is um you know a minority of people a subculture that may be growing as as you suggest. But the the mm. people who are involved in these attacks were active in their multicultural communities, living mm. kind of very normal lives, potentially as yeah. a cover to not be suspected. But what has been a response from from people in Indonesia and I guess people you're in correspondence with over there because obviously you're in Melbourne at the moment to these. To, to these attacks yeah I mean like uh, I think the great things about today's world is uh, the social media again the internet things and even though what happened in Indonesia I can still access with those people because I have been embedded in double court well, with this community as a way for me to understand their voices you know you know the concern the trend you know and there are two responses here which I'm very sad to say after 15 years of suffering from this network or struggling with this terrorist network, still there are a number of people who actively denying this, saying that, oh, this is a way for the Indonesian government to divert the economical issue because now dollar is hitting 15,000 rupiah and also saying, oh, this is as a way to, you know, a West attack on Islam. So basically, you, uh, there is a group and this is well systematic they they do they cannot acknowledge that this is internally this is internal problem of, of, of indonesia as us and second thing which is i think is very good which is there are many 
civil society organizations start to embrace this issue and they come out and then also challenge the narrative of the group, which is very good. But however, the Indonesian government now react to, I think, I don't know whether, what is the best way to, to say it. I mean, like, uh, the fact that they use military, they not invite the involvement, for the involvement of the military, which is something that I don't really like to see, because we are dealing with a culture here. And I don't think that a military approach will be the best. If you look at, you know, all the worldwide cases, you know, in either in Somalia, Afghanistan, the more you use or Yemen, especially if you use force, then you see more growth of terrorist network rather than, you know, decreasing. Because here it's about, for me, it's again, after talking to the people, it's about inclusion. Include them in our debate. Include them in our debate. You know, I, and then I come to a very practical aspect when in the end of the day we need to coexist. You know, there are a number of people who do not like the way our government works. But as long as they do not use violence, we should be able to tolerate, you know. I think this very pragmatic way what I have been trying to do so far. And Noah Huda Ismail is with us. He's founder of the International Institute for Peace. He's also peace building, and he's also um, a PhD student over at Monash University. And uh, mm. we're speaking about the recent uh, Surabaya attacks, but other um, terrorist attacks also in Indonesia, and I suppose a way forward from here. And I mean, uh, Huda, we hope that the the government in in Indonesia are listening to voices like yours. Yeah. But what what do you think the approach will be? Will it continue to have a military focus do you think i think you know almost certain right that they, i think the president is happy to sign and to support you know the formation of a new military special operation done by the military at the nine so like uh, so you will see more militaristic approach to deal with the uh, immediate threat here and i'm afraid that it will jeopardize the whole kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, either soft or cultural approach that what I've been trying to do using film, using, you know, narrative, thing, you know, social enterprise as a way to include those, you know, people in the periphery, in the fringe of radicalism. You know, I fully agree that, you know, a force is extremely important for those who really want to use the violence, you know, those who carry guns, who use carry, you know, like a weapon. But I think rather than military, I prefer to use intelligence, you know, emphasize the use of intelligence more because, you know, this is the nature of the group rather than attacking directly using force, I think. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear your insights, Huda, and um, and we'll watch what happens after this, and hopefully we won't experience um, anything of, of what we've seen over the past week or so again anytime soon. But um, very interesting I to have your so. insights. I hope so. I hope so. I really finger crossed. You know, it's not fair to say I live comfortably here in Melbourne, no traffic, you know, nice weather and things like this, and I keep ranting about what my government is struggling with. It's not fair to say this. No. <laughs> well, your insights are um, very much valued, and, and thanks so much for coming and sharing with us um with them with us today on triple r sure 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 thank you for having me again thank you this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au